Good morning, good morning. We're talking singing in the rain. Oh, I was just about to join in. Oh, let's do we it. We stayed the whole long- Oh, no. I you don't even remember <laughs> the song. <laughs> also, The Defenders. <laughs> What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All, the casual entertainment podcast for your inner nerd. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Uh, Man, I I'm not going to apologize for my singing. <laughs> yeah, I, I should apologize for mine. You know, I used to actually be in choir. I used to have an, an actually good voice. I think that this podcast has sort of ruined it. It's ruined it? Yeah, yeah. It makes me sad. So, But I tell you what, Jake, I am super excited about today because we're going to be diving in to our backlist hall of shame the first that is correct that's correct and and i am really excited because i gave you a great movie to start off now just to give to give you a reminder of what this is all about um jake and i have some movies that we have not seen some movies that are like culturally relevant or just really good movies that a lot of people have seen but we haven't the and movies that when you say you haven't seen it, somebody looks at you sideways and says, what? What? How is that possible? How have you not seen Star Wars? I you know. You even human, bro? Yeah. No. And there are certain movies that really, to be an American, you kind of need to see. And the movie that you saw this last week is a movie just like that. So Paul thinks. Uh, and later on, we're, we're going to be talking about The Defenders. Yeah. And yeah. whether or not that's going to be a yeah, modern Yeah, if you don't classic. care about 1950s musicals, then you can just stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah, because The Defenders has dropped on Netflix, and I have some strong opinions. I've watched all eight episodes. Oh, and, goodness. Uh, I feel strongly about about the things that wow. happened or did not happen in The Defenders, which for those of you that haven't been keeping up with the Netflix universe, Netflix Marvel universe is the the mess around featuring Iron Fist, Daredevil, Luke Cage, and Jessica Jones all in the same series. And Sigourney uh, Weaver. And Sigourney Weaver. Can't forget that. I have some bones to pick with her in our talk about oh the Defenders. Oh my goodness. But, I but believe this. before we get to that, before we get to the most least important things, it's time for the Backlist Hall of Shame. All right, folks, we are now going to be diving into our backlist hall of shame. And I'm so excited because we're going to be talking about one of my favorite movies of all time. We'll see if it's one of Jake's favorite movies now. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. You still haven't gotten it right. Singing in the Rain. What a glorious feeling. I'm smiling again. You're just happy again. Happy again. Smiling again. Is it really? Yeah. No, you're lying. I think he actually sings it both ways. Yeah, maybe. At different points in the song. Maybe. Yeah. So, anyway. I think... Gene Kelly... Is a jerk from all the research I did. (laughs) Debbie Reynolds... Sounds like a saint. (laughs) And that other really funny guy... guy Nobody knows... So I was... Okay, so when I started this movie, I was like, he looks so familiar i'm sure i've seen him in something yeah yeah. and i looked him up and i'm pretty sure i've seen him in nothing (laughs) yeah Yeah, he's only done that one movie but he was great in that one movie okay so he actually did a lot of stuff when i did look back he he had some character who i didn't recognize uh but he did like 10 movies of this one character yeah see what i think was actually originally going to happen in singing in the rain was you had these three main characters right you had the gene kelly character you had the debbie debbie reynolds character and then you had this other guy character nobody remembers what his name is i think was supposed to be danny Kaye, who is a really famous comedic comedic singer dancer actor and i think that they were originally going to try to get him but they got this other guy instead and i think he did a fantastic job but then i'm biased because i think almost everything in this movie is pretty fantastic yeah his name is donald o'connor thank you yes donald o'connor and yeah he played he really wasn't in a whole lot he did 
I, well, actually, he was in a whole lot, but he wasn't famous. Right. Like, at least not by our standards. He wasn't in classics, except for Singing in the Rain. Yeah, yeah. And he died just fairly recently, right? 2003, so, yeah. That's fairly recently in my <laughs> in my universe. That's fairly recently. Yeah, because uh, yeah. 14 years ago, I was in elementary school. Not really. I was in middle school. All right. So, so there you go. So let me unpack right. the, the Singing plot in the Rain really quickly, and then we'll get into what you thought of it. So Singing in the Rain takes, uh, takes part... It's set really in the switchover between silent movies and talkies. So it's sort of a retro 1920s. It's an old movie that's set in an old setting. Exactly, exactly. And so you have these characters who don't really know how to make the transition from, from you know, being in these silent movies to all of a sudden needing to have voices that sound good while talking or singing or whatnot. Um, and so there's that tension. And, and so Gene Kelly plays this old movie star who successfully makes the transition. His partner, who he's become very famous for starring uh, up against, is not particularly good at that. She has a very squeaky voice and that type of thing. So it becomes sort of this tension of, of how they can move their careers into, you know, kind of the 20th century. There so, you go. There you have it. That, I don't even need to say anything else. That's, that's all I felt about it. That's, no. So I hadn't hadn't seen it before. That's why we're doing this backlist hall of shame. Now, did you know anything about it going in? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. You know, knew the song. I didn't know. I had heard the song "Singing in the Rain." I'd heard the song "Good Morning," but only little bits. Only right. like those little bits that people remember. Because my mom would used to sing the "Good Morning" song to me in the mornings. When oh, I would did wake she up, really? Yeah. That's the sweetest thing I've ever heard. That's really. Nice. <laughs> it was usually as she was like putting ice on my back or something. <laughs> But then singing a sweet song, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I didn't know what the plot was. uh, And so I think I'm supposed to, as far as our backlist goes, I'm supposed to answer a couple of questions here. One of those is, um, how do I think I would have felt about it at the time? When it came out. When it was made. When it came out. Transport Jake into the 1950s. 1952. When it came out. And you know what? Um... What I think is actually I think I would have liked this movie for what it meant about an industry because if I look at where I'm at now in my life and career and trans and look like I can translate that back pretty easily because I'm operating in a career field that's undergoing a lot of change. I'm in the marketing and advertising and content creation world. They all kind of used to be separate in many ways. You had your advertisers and your marketers and your writers and your – video storytellers because they didn't even have the title they were just like you know you had your directors and producers it was all very segmented but now we live in this modern age where social media and websites and digital media is upending all of those traditional things and so i literally working in social media and digital marketing am doing this kind of cultural transformation every day as a part of my job. And so I actually really appreciated that about this movie, showing what it's like to take something from old to new. Sure, it's oversimplified in this movie, and that's and because it's a musical, but I, I appreciated that about the story. And so I think I would have really appreciated that at the time. I think my personality likes the forward thinking and how do we take the old and transform it into a new medium and how does that change the way we tell stories? That's another thing I'm passionate about. And so I love this whole thought of the fact that they had to come up with these new techniques to tell stories just because they could hear people's voices now. So I thought that was awesome. And so I think I would have really liked that part. Yeah. Some of the of best it. scenes of the, the movie, I think, is where they're trying to figure out where to put the microphone. Yeah. Just can't quite get it they right. They can't yeah. quite get oh. it figured out. And um, so I really appreciated that. Now, I think the other question I have to answer is how do I feel about the movie overall? How do I think – it holds up. And man, there are some really fun moments in this movie. The opening sequence where Gene Kelly is talking about how he ascended to stardom and he's lying out his butt and they're showing that in flashbacks with him and his the old vaudeville Cosmo, scene. Yeah. The vaudeville. I really liked that. However, that is actually – that encapsulates my problem with the rest of the movie, oh my Paul. Goodness. And let me, let me caveat oh this by saying goodness. I did not not like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the movie overall. However, so many of the songs in this movie are completely gratuitous. 
Well, yes, it's a there musical are, from the 1950s. But there was a multitude of gratuitous songs, and they went on and on and on, and they did not advance the plot at all. No. They did not advance no. your understanding of the characters at no. all. Very they true. Were, they were just completely gratuitous. And so I would find myself checking my watch and being like, it's been four or five minutes. Uh. Nothing, there's no – this. It, I don't know anything more about this character. I actually just forgot – why we started this song in the first place. You know what? In, in probably one of your least favorite moments is probably one of my favorite moments, actually. The Moses Supposes song where, you know, they're, they're essentially in, in speech class, right? Yeah. And they're doing this elaborate song and dance. It doesn't advance anything at all. Um, it doesn't tell us anything really about the characters. But it's such a fun high energy scene right it is and that one that one was less long than some <laughs> of the others and and at least had at least played into the transitional part of the period sure where it's like this was him getting his voice lessons and so they're playing around with it sure it was extra but at least it tied into the plot somewhat the one that killed me was Gotta dance oh you know what though are you kidding me that was that a was long like, number Five, six minutes of complete no. Gene Kelly narcissistic garbage. <laughs> you know what? It did nothing. It no. did nothing for the movie. It fit in zero. The whole plot, I'm like, this is, what is happening? You know, and, and actually, that's that's actually one of the most famous song and dance numbers from the entire movie. Right, because it's and like I'll explain the, why. one of the most expensive. I mean, well, it cost it a ton of money. See, he choreographed the whole thing. Okay, so let me let me back up here. When you like, when you were in high school and you go to class, did you study like epic literature? You yeah. know, you know. So you know that within epic literature, there are certain things that you have to have in there for it to be epic. You have to have this big old list of things. You have to have, you know, there. It's almost like a sonnet where you have to follow a certain path. Sure. Yeah. Old time musicals almost follow that same scene, and when you look at at even like. Disney cartoons, Beauty and the Beast or whatever, they've got to have a huge, spectacular, hundreds of people dance number. It's, sure. it's like almost required. And yeah. so that was sort of, that was, in, in a way, that almost made more sense than any of the other songs because it was actually set within a stage environment, right, where they're saying, we're going to do this big musical number for this new feature that we're doing. And so it was sort of that big musical number, right? So... <laughs> It, it was, and but, it did, and I, I totally yeah. agree. When when I first saw it, that was by far my least favorite song in the whole thing. But now that I'm I'm old and wisened and much wiser, I might say, I I really did appreciate it. So, but but I think, and so where I'm coming full circle on this is the that opening sequence I talk about, where Gene Kelly is yeah. telling his BS story, and you're seeing all these flashbacks to the song and dance routines he did with his buddy Cosmo. That. Those song and dance routines that you see in there move the plot along. Like they're 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 getting you used to his character, to Cosmo's character, to their their relationship with each other, to their yep. goofiness, their silliness. Kind of they came pulled themselves up by the, their bootstraps. So all that time you're enjoying the song, you're enjoying the dance routines that are a part of it, and it's advancing the plot. Yeah, and I think that's something La La Land did actually really well. I was just about to say it didn't do it. No, I think La La Land did it much better, where when it did these big musical numbers, it, it was getting you either moving the plot along or moving you deeper into understanding that character. Whereas I don't think that Gotta right. Dance did that for Gene Kelly's character, and that's why it bothered me. I, I, I understand that you want that type of song right. in there, but advance who he is as a character. Yeah. Advance who somebody else is as a character. Advance... The story, but it literally, okay, it literally drops you right back once it's done, and nothing's happened. All right, so I got to ask you, and when you compared like this that. to La La Land, yeah, which movie did you like better? Um, I think I liked La La Land better. Right now, I could definitely see the influences of Singing in the Rain on La La Land. And I definitely liked Singing in the Rain a lot more than I anticipated. Oh, did you? I did. I kind of was going in. I can't in, believe that you wouldn't trust I was kind of going in thinking it, I was going to kind of come in right at a five. Like, yeah. you know what? I could take it or leave it. But there were some parts that genuinely left me smiling. 
where even if like at by the end of the movie I had some frustrations with overly long nonsensical dance right. scenes, uh, like even even some nonsensical songs like make them laugh. Yeah, that I felt was okay because I felt like I was getting to know Cosmo a little bit better. He's a goofball. Even if they didn't end up using that as much as they could have afterwards, I was okay with it. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, it's it's interesting because when I compare I really liked La La Land. I yeah. really enjoyed La La Land. But one of the things that I thought about as I was watching it is how, how much of an art of the musical we've lost. You know, mm. La La Land, as you say, was kind of an homage in some ways to, to Singing in the Rain specifically and musicals like Singing, Singing in the Rain. You saw a lot of, you see a lot of Singing in the Rain, you see a lot of West Side Story, you see a lot of that within, within La La Land. And I really appreciated that. But it's also interesting how they filmed La La Land. And I think part of it is because, number one, they weren't really working with song and dance people. But number two, it, it makes you feel like something has been lost. When you watch La La Land, you notice the cuts and they're really super sharp and they focus in on different parts of the body oftentimes. They focus in on the feet. They focus on the movement of the of the torso. When you watch a musical like Singing in the Rain, they're all far away shots. So you really appreciate the movement of the whole. And you'll also notice that there's hardly any cutting done at all. When you watch the song and dance numbers there, it's just complete start to finish song and dance where they can go for five minutes and there's never a breath. And I think that, well, I know that that was sort of instituted in in part to show the skill of these dancers. I think it was Fred Astaire who really said either, either the camera moves or I do. And he refused to be in a movie where there were a lot of quick cuts like that because he wanted people to see the actual dancing. And so you see elements of that within this this movie, um, just watching the feet of Gene Kelly and McDonald during Moses Supposes, it is remarkable how quickly they move and how skillfully they move. And I think that that's, that's one of the th- reasons why, and this may happen to you as well, I actually think that Singing in the Rain improves each time you watch it. Mm. It holds up well. And obviously it's dated. It's 1952. It's going to feel in some ways to our modern, jaded, skeptical eyes a little bit hokey. And definitely the filming is different and the colors almost seem a little too sharp in places. But every time I watch it, I actually like it more than the last time I watched it. And that's, that is a rare feat for a movie to do. It is. And I think something that I feel like helps it in that regard is the fact that it is a critique on something behind it. So even though you're watching it in a modern era where this movie you could itself critique the style of musicals as I am right now. Um, and that may say more about my opinion of musicals as a whole. Well, I, I don't think, think you're alone. I think, yeah, I don't think I'm alone yeah. in that. And, and it's, and I can appreciate the artistry. Like the dancing is insane. It's spectacular. Yeah. And you can't get around that. And there's those moments, Moses supposes make them laugh. I mean, the stuff that they do in some of those scenes is remarkable and, really makes you appreciate the talent they have, but also, to me, shows the weakness of musicals like that in that I think they struggle with storytelling and short-change story. And I think that's why I liked La La Land a little bit better, is that I felt like it didn't sacrifice the story the way some musicals do, where, again, I was getting lost, checking my watch, what is this even about? Yeah. And then having finally getting back to the story and the story being shortchanged versus those musical yeah. numbers being more efficiently used. Right. And and sure, maybe I, I there's something to be said for wasted time. But it can be too much. And yeah. there was definitely moments in Singing in the Rain where I thought it was too much. Yeah, you know, I and I think one of the other things that, that La La Land does so well that you just don't see in Singing in the Rain. And I think that this this says something about the genre. It says it it's either a weakness about the genre or a weakness about us. In that La La Land had such a, a bittersweet feeling to it, you know, that you have these joyful moments, these exuberant dance numbers and all this sort of stuff, but you have these moments of of poignancy and sadness and, and even pathos. And and when you watch Singing in the Rain, it is just pure fifties 
life is great. Yeah. You know, even though there's, you know, there's some drama in it there and all that sort of stuff, but it's a very optimistic movie. And I don't think we're really used to those hardcore optimistic movies. They can feel a little shallow to us today. Yeah, you know? yeah, we we see it almost feels like we're bandaging over stuff when we do that today. Yeah, which is so is funny. Like one of the things I really enjoyed about this movie, in addition to watching it, was reading kind of all the lore that's come out like since then about how Gene Kelly was on set and all the different opinions as to why he was that way on set. Some people saying he was projecting like. People saying he was a big jerk and yelling at people and hard to work with. Some people saying that was because he was trying to prove a point to the studio. Other people saying it was because he was an egomaniac. Other people saying it was a combination of both. Debbie Reynolds and her inexperience as a 19-year-old who didn't know how to dance. and Didn't know anything about anything when yeah. she first came here. The legend of Donald O'Connor doing the Make Him Laugh song where he's doing these crazy backflips at the end of the number off the wall being hospitalized and then having to come back and shoot it again because there was something wrong with the film when they shot it the first time. And like those sorts of things are, are fun to hear about, even if they're kind of mythological at this point. Uh, So I really enjoyed that about this movie, that it's a movie about the industry that has a lot of stories about the industry related to it. Like the fact that the whole plot or the whole plot is about this Debbie Reynolds character having to be the voice for this other movie, famous movie star's character. But in real life, they had to do the opposite. And this actress that was playing the terrible voice had to be Debbie Reynolds' voice over the top. No. Yes. No. Yes. See, I knew that Debbie Reynolds was dubbed. Her voice was dubbed. Right. But it, the was, singing... it was Gene Hagen for a couple – like actually I think it was two – but a couple of the songs and uh, and the voice when later in late in the film when you hear Debbie Reynolds doing a voice for Gene Hagen, it's Gene Hagen doing a voice for Debbie Reynolds doing a voice for Gene Hagen. That is hilarious. I did not know that. Yeah, and there's some that's, great stuff there. That's fascinating. All right, so so Jake, what out of a scale of one to ten, uh-huh. what would you rate Singing in the Rain now that you've seen it? Uh, on a and scale, are you glad that you saw it? Yeah, on a scale of 1 to questions. 10, I am... On a scale of 1 to 10, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, I am glad that I saw it. Uh, the The nice thing about these types of movies... and the night, I think you can enjoy the old ones like this because you you don't have the same expectation from them, so you can kind of enjoy that relentless optimism. The way like a modern movie, it'd be like, come on, come on. And it's on. a great movie to show your kids. Yeah, well, maybe. There's some like... There's some like strippers bursting out of cakes. Oh, yeah, Just yeah, kidding. Yeah, yeah. They're they're mostly clothed. But I imagine Content that was pretty with Jake Roberson. <laughs> I imagine that was pretty scandalous in the fifties to have these cake girls burst out and you can see their whole leg. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got you off track. Yeah, I'm anyway. off track now. Um, cake girls. Uh, so I, I am glad I saw it because it is, and I understand why you keep coming back to it because there are those moments when we are faced with such a cynical, jaded, depressing world in many ways that we see all around us in a digital age where it's kind of just oppressive. It's nice to have those moments to just take that deep breath and smile at something. Yeah. So I was glad for that reason. And I would definitely still give it a solid seven out of 10. If we were going on a 20 point scale, I would give it a seven and a half out of 10 um, just to give it that extra bump because it it really is a well-made movie. Yeah. In spite of the fact like that a movie could have the problems that I felt like it did have. And I still liked it that much, and still would say I would watch that again. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. So if I was, if I was, um, if an alien suddenly came down to Earth and said, "Okay, I need to understand American cinema," <laughs> I would have them see three movies. Okay. Gone with the Wind. Oh my word. Star Wars. Better. Singing in the Rain. Oh my goodness! Uh, the last two I'd be okay with. I don't know about Gone with the Wind. Yeah, it's you know Gone with they the would, Wind is a tough one. They would stop watching movies after they watch Gone with the Wind. It's a I tricky thing. A you can't give, you can't two. do Casablanca, but Citizen Kane. You know, it's just a little dry in places. Well, so is Gone with the Wind. Well, it's true. It's true. But you what got, about the Muppet movie? The Muppet movie is great. Yeah? How yeah, about that? We'll, we'll do a podcast on the Muppet movie. Oh, there you have it, folks. Singing in the rain. I think you guys probably have a lot of strong opinions on this one, so tell me how crazy I am for my uh, lack of appreciation for Gotta Dance. 
everybody needs gotta to watch. dance, gotta dance, gotta dance. That's the only two words in that entire song, just on repeat. Are you kidding me right now? You're you're, you're so lame. You're so lame. Narcissism. Here's one more fun fact before we go to the defenders. <laughs> they had to dub over a lot of the tap dances. So there you go. Dub over? What do you mean? Like, the, the tap sounds didn't all come out like the way they wanted them to in the live performances, so they had to go back and, like, do dub tap dances over those scenes. We have to dub you over every single time we do this podcast. <laughs> it's true. This is even my voice that you're hearing. <laughs> it's it's my voice. I wish I could say it. Yeah, Paul does both voices. All right. Anyway. Well, now that we've thoroughly discussed my feelings on musicals and Singing in the Rain and La La Land and... All of the above. I, I do feel edified that I've added Singing yeah. in the Rain no. to my – it's no longer on my backlist. I'm exactly. taking it off the backlist. Plucks exactly. it out. It can never be on my backlist again because I've seen it. And I think in 10 years you will have watched this movie five times and liked it better each time. Maybe one more time. <laughs> probably not five. But now it's my turn to pick for Paul off of uh. Paul's list. And uh, Paul – I thought we should counterbalance. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to go I'm guessing I'm not getting a musical. <laughs> Paul, you're not going to get a musical, and you're not going to get a movie filled with relentless optimism. Oh, man. In fact, you're going to get a movie that could be called relentlessly pessimistic in many ways. I think I know where you're going. And it features one of the greatest villains of all time. And we're going to – that is Anton Chigurh from No Country for Old Men. Oh. It's on Netflix, so those of you that all right uh, care to come, so along you can with watch us, along with you us. can watch along with us and hear what Paul has to say about this movie that he's never seen. Cohen Brothers, Cohen Brothers, no has Country a really great reputation, but Tommy I don't Lee Jones, like... yeah, oh yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. I'm oh. a big Tommy Lee Jones fan, so he may he may make it for you. Uh, we'll see. Call we'll it. see. Call it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll understand that by next podcast. You will. You will. And without further ado, it's time for The Defenders. In Marvel's The Defenders, which dropped on Netflix within the last couple of weeks, August 2017, finally we have the union of the Netflix Marvel Universe superheroes. And Daredevil, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, and the immortal Iron Fist. Danny Rand. And yet... Oh my goodness, Paul. And yet... Something's still missing. And you know what it is? A good dang story. <laughs> Competent storytelling. Oh rather. my goodness. But Paul, we've got we're talking all right, we're talking to the defenders. All right. We're talking about a show that is now trying to mash up five seasons of superhero stories. Right. right. Two Daredevil, one Jessica Jones, one Luke Cage, one Iron Fist. They've all they've been building up to this for a while. They no have no secret. Yes. And they're building up to more after. Exactly. We still have the Punisher coming. And supposedly more Daredevil. Which, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really interested. I, now, I got to tell you right off the bat, I have not watched the whole series. I am on episode four as we're taping this. All right. And I have to say, I've really been enjoying it so far. I really have. My wife and I are watching it. It's it's fun. I like some of the detail that you see. I love a lot of the characters. You know, I've you we've I think even talked on this podcast about Daredevil. We, yeah. we both really like Daredevil. Have an appreciation for Jessica Jones. Luke Cage seems a stand up guy. Iron Fist. We'll just go on. <laughs> but it, for for me, seeing these these folks get together and to see the interplay of the characters. Um, and to see some of the action sequences, there's a lot of talking in the first four episodes, but the few action sequences that we see are pretty entertaining. I'm I'm pretty invested in this show. Yeah. So I'm enjoying it. Why are you not? That's why I'm worried for you, Paul. Okay, guys, I'm just going <laughs> to say something here. I have seen all eight episodes. I'm not going to give you the big spoilers. So don't worry. I'm not going to reveal anything about who, what, when, where, how. So don't worry. But that being said... That is actually why I'm so upset right now, Paul. 
is I wasn't I was enjoying it too. I was enjoying the first couple episodes. However, it was around episode four or in five that all of a sudden uh not even all of a sudden, it was building through episodes four and five where it was like, oh my goodness, they're about to pull a lost on us here. Which I loved. Paul loves Lost, but it's it. When I say they're about to pull a Lost on us, it's not in the it's not in the actual like where Lost went. It's not to say that it's it's copying what like the story right. of Lost. We're not seeing any smoke. Monsters. No, 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 nothing like that. Polar However, bears. it was the same feeling I got when I got to season six. That well, that was the last season of Lost, right? Six total seasons. I think yeah. so. When I got to season six of Lost, and I started to have this realization, like. I don't think they're not going to answer these questions and they're not going to answer the, they're not going to, they're not going to have time to do this. They've spent so much time in these first four or five episodes establishing these characters that they're not going to have time to do this story any good justice. And, and it, for me, it all fell apart and fell apart hardcore in episode eight. So that's, that's interesting where I was like, so it was kind of like the opposite of, Except worse, not worse. It was the opposite of what happened in Iron Fist. So for those of you that have seen Iron Fist, the the series, it's bad. The writing's not good. The acting's not good. There's no memorable action sequences. The, there's like no memorable villain. Like the effort, the motivation. There's really it's just it was not lame. a good show. It was it's lame. lame. Yeah, it's a super lame. Um. And but it got a little bit better towards the end, towards the last couple of episodes, as they as they were setting up more involving the hand, right? This this shadow villain organization that's been working behind the scenes of all the other Netflix, of all these superhero shows, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, like they finally start to bring some of that stuff in, and you're like, all right, you're setting us up for the Defenders, and we're just gonna go full throttle into the Defenders. But then you start watching the Defenders, and they're back to setting stuff up again. And and so while it's still strong, it's not as bad as Iron Fist. It's still strong stuff. I'm like, isn't this why you had five seasons before the Defenders so, to set all this stuff up? So now let me let me back up because I'm not. I don't think I'm tracking with you right. completely here. Yeah, so I, you guys, were, I'm a little emotional right you now. You are. I'm a, so if, if, you forgive were, me if I'm a little all over the place because my brain keeps jumping to all these things. I didn't like that, and I didn't like that, and I didn't like that. Go so ahead. you were saying that you enjoyed. The first four episodes. I did. Right? They're they're not bad. But those are the ones that sort of set it up, right? Right. So, but that's the problem. Is that it? Kind of ends up being what the entire season is. Okay. It's all setup, and then a really hasty, unsatisfying conclusion. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think that actually Netflix had come under some criticism for both Luke Cage and Iron Fist saying, you know what, this was stretched out over way too many episodes. I think both of them had 12 or 13 episodes. And and I think I, I remember reading in a couple of places where a reviewer said, this would have been much better had it been eight episodes. And sure. That's what this is. Do you think that that Netflix overreacted? Do you think if it had stretched out to 12 to 13 episodes, it would have been better? I'm not sure. Where it ends up landing... I'm not sure that the problem is how many episodes as much as the problem is it didn't really feel like it, they had anything. Yeah. It, it you can't spoil so it for me. It's anticlimactic. So, yeah. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. Where the motivation of the villains is like, what? what? Why? How? Is what? It's like, Sigourney Weaver. She doesn't she need completely motivation. Completely wasted. Uh, she well. is completely wasted. And you will see what I mean. Yeah. As no. you guys get into this, like you're all, you're you're it's like you're gearing up. Daredevil seasons 1 and 2 were so good. They had great villains. They had great supporting cast. They had great motivation and angst and even anti-heroes mixed in with your heroes and your villains and like the action drove the story along, the story drove the action along, like it all moved so well together. Such compelling TV. Yeah. Um, Just like a good musical. Everything moved <laughs> along. But what the Defender – like the problem with the Defenders is it just feels like they don't – they didn't have a place for it all to go, which is where I felt – what I felt like what happened with Lost. Really good, compelling, watchable content like through season five. But then 
no payoff. And that's, I guess that's where my frustration and yeah. why I'm so upset about the defenders is there's no payoff. Even knowing that they wanted to like set, they, they, they try to close it, but then set up. It's just a mess. It's well, so uneven. And that, it, it, that it's like seems it didn't know be, what to do with itself. Well, and, and, and I can understand that. I, I would have been okay if it was a tent pole, but it wasn't even a tent pole. Yeah. It was like half tent pole, half. No. Well, and I uh, think that's sort of the, the danger that we run in. I mean, we saw that within, and I'm not saying that you're right, because like I say, I'm only, in, I am only in, in episode four, and I'm really enjoying it so far. But it is sort of the problem with, with the superhero universe that we're in, right, is, is that it's hard to tell a complete and really satisfying story when you're always looking forward to the next story. And, right. and we saw that DC has definitely run into problems with that yep. sort of attempt to do that. Uh, Marvel has been more successful, but it's, it's a tricky thing it's to do. It's still hard. And, and you do have sort of this buildup to, to having all these characters in one, places, in one place, and, and you have the, the reputation that Netflix has built on the Daredevils and Jessica Jones and, and Luke Cage, where you have these really strong, gritty, but still heroic stories. Um, that that come to these nice, satisfying ends. That even as they look forward, even as they look forward, and I, I do think that there can be um, sometimes creatively you can sort of freeze up. I mean, you know that you have so many really compelling characters, and that's that's the strength of, of Netflix's superhero universe, right? The the characters are really strong. They have a except lot of complexity, except for Iron Fist. I totally agree. Um, but when you have to give all these characters all the screen time, maybe they just can't do it as effectively. Do you think? It's it's possible. But again, I feel – and I guess this is – the things that are feeding most into my frustration is I feel like they did that with Daredevil in seasons one and two because they had some big personalities. If you think about Daredevil season two in particular. But it only had one hero that you needed to anchor the story. Sure, but – but at the same time, you had Daredevil, you had Elektra, you had Wilson Fisk, you had the Punisher. Like, you had all these characters that were big characters and chewed up a lot in of season, screen time. Yeah. In season two, Wilson, remember, he comes back. Uh, uh, spoilers for those who haven't seen Daredevil season two, but Wilson Fisk does show up again. Um, and, it like, they had all of that. That's a lot of personality. Like, when you see, when you watch it, that's a lot of personality, even mm-hmm. if they're not all the heroes. Mm-hmm. The, the thing that made Daredevil season one and two so compelling, I think, is that they spent a lot of screen time on the villain and his backstory. Both time, both seasons. Yeah. And Elektra and her backstory as a side character. And so all their motivations blended together in such a powerful way. Yeah. In a much more confined universe. And what I think the Defenders got caught, like where I think when I try to pare down my emotions and where I think the Defenders went off the rails is it, it got away. It tried to get back into this huge, massive, crazy, you know, world-defying threat. And that seems to be you – know, It's almost it's antithetical to the, uh, to the Netflix model. It is, where they're dealing with much more intimate problems. Right. And then it starts tries to deal with this much bigger, much less intimate problem. Yeah. And all of a sudden it doesn't effectively do that. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it – and then, it, and then the – and I think you'll see this. I think you'll agree with me of those of you that have gotten to see uh, episode eight. The, the show itself falls apart and becomes uneven, doesn't know what it wants to be like – there's a fight scene where it's got this epic superhero fight music, and in the middle of the scene, it inexplicably this is not a spoiler. This is just talking about the show, like how it's produced. Inexplicably in a fight scene, epic music, and it and it switches to rap music for like a minute, and then it just switches back. Man. Like it, it literally felt like an editing error. It didn't match up with the scene. It didn't match up with the tone. It didn't match up with the like. It just was completely off. Yeah. And there was a bunch of that kind of thing in the last two episodes. All right. Well, I I hear what you're saying. And you're not there yet. I'm and not there yet. Yeah. No. And and to, I was still I hopeful think, at episode four. Well, and I think that I think because the story has pulled me along so far. Yeah. I think that I am going to go in still hopeful, sure. even with all. And because you knock Lost, I'm I'm one of the <laughs> I'm one of the big defenders yeah, of the Paul finale of Lost. Lost. I, I I love the finale of Lost. So um, so we shall we shall see what we shall see. But 
But let me give you what I really appreciated about yeah, what yeah, I've yeah. seen so far. So one of the things that, that I think has been really good for me is to see how Netflix has sort of combined these very, very different shows in a way and blended them, I think, at, to this point, pretty effectively together. And, and one of the things that I noticed was the color palette. Yeah. Um, you know how when you see Daredevil, there's a lot of red. When yep. you see Jessica Jones, there's a lot of purple. And then you have these elements when these characters come together. I think it was in episode two, Jessica Jones is in sort of this this washed out purplish. Um, Purple blue interrogation room. Interrogation room, exactly. Matt Murdock, the lawyer, bursts in, and you see this door that he bursts in is painted red. Right. I thought, I think that a lot of those things I really appreciate, and I like. I have liked so far the interplay between the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, for me. Iron Fist is much less annoying here because he's supposed to be sort of an annoying character. I mean, right. you can sort of see that he's he drives he annoys Luke everybody Craig. else crazy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you see him sort of as this, as opposed to a standalone hero, he's sort of this naive, well-meaning, but kind of bratty kid. And that, and so because of that, it sort of balances his annoyance factor out. I can deal with it a little bit better. Yeah. Um, and it has some some Christian undertones that I think are kind of cool as well. So it does, you know, getting Daredevil back on screen with uh, uh, Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock slash Daredevil is great. You know, he he does such a good job with he that. He does character. a great job. He really does. And and so that helps a lot. You get less of Iron Fist, and because you see everybody else getting annoyed with him, you feel a little bit more justified in your annoyance with him. Um, you know, I think I think they could have done what the first four episodes did. I think they could have done that in one or two episodes, honestly. Um, but you know, that's getting back to my complaints. You know, to say I, I still give the show a solid six, six and a half, like even with my big complaints about the end, because it does do a good job to start. It it does. It's not till the end that it comes off the rails, and so it's part of that extra emotion of all the things I don't like about it. Right, based right. on because episode really eight is liked, the most. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I really like the fresh. start stuff. Yeah, like the starting stuff, and so I'm more disappointed that it it began so strong and ended so weak. So let me ask you this: Does this make you? More excited for a Defenders two, a second season of Defenders, because it might do it might rectify some of the problems, or does it sour you on the whole concept? It, it you know what this is this is going to sound crazy because it, it sounds crazy to me. The way this show, the way the Defenders ended, this season of the Defenders ended, it soured me on the prospects of another Daredevil season. Oh my. Goodness, and of an and of the Punisher, wow! Because because it the way they to me in my opinion fumble the last two episodes and the last episode in particular of the Defenders and where it leaves some of the characters and the story in general and then again how just from a story perspective a production perspective and then with the history of the Iron Fist where it leaves me at the end of the Defenders is I, I'm. So you I'm might not skeptical even, about Daredevil. You might I'm not skeptical even watch it. about the next Punisher. I will probably watch them, but I am not anticipating them now. Hmm. The way That's... I was previously. Like the way I was previously was like, I cannot wait for the Punisher. I cannot wait for Daredevil season three. They're gonna be awesome. Where where the Defenders has left the story and the characters, I'm skeptical now. Hmm. I've gone from super high anticipation to skepticism. Well, that and makes... that's that's where it's left me, and that's yeah. that's a bummer because Daredevil season one and two I think are some of the best TV we've had in a long time. So this is going to be interesting. I guess we'll have to report on what I thought. Oh, I'm going to have that Paul report back. Yeah. yeah, to say Jake, you are absolutely nuts. It was a great show. I think, I think Paul's or... going to come back, and he's going to be like, "I am so frustrated, just like you." Well, we shall see. <laughs> we shall see. I will not. I will not judge yet. Yet. and now on to the most least important thing here we are at the most least important thing the way we like to wrap up every show 
bringing you the trivial and pop culture that everybody's going nuts about or things that nobody's talking about that might be super important. Interpret as you wish. <laughs> Paul and I certainly do. Yes, we do. We really go off the rails here. Paul, what do you have for us this week? All right. So I am going to just make note that um, I think by airtime, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a movie that's now 40 years old, uh, has been re-released and is playing in theaters once again. Um, It was quite the movie when I was eight years old. I can still remember a lot of the movie. It was it was fairly it was a fairly big movie. It came out like half a year after Star Wars did, directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, made everybody go to Devil's Tower, and when I went a couple years ago, it, that was that was a thrill just to be able to see what you know where Close Encounters took place. Um, but I didn't realize until I read this article by by this guy named Jay Hoberman of the New York Times that Close Encounters was such a spiritual movie. Hmm. Kind of interesting. So back in the day, um, the New Republic characterized the movie, which was Mr. Spielberg's, and I'm quoting now from the article, Mr. Spielberg's follow-up to Jaws as an event in the history of faith. Writing in the New York Times, the Catholic priest and sociologist Andrew M. Greeley extolled the movie's sense of religious wonder. The conservative Christian publication Today's Student, which had a university following, went even further in asserting that nothing has ever approached the rapture and enchantment of the movie's closing scenes, adding that its grand scale and magnitude approached the work of God. Really interesting. And I can kind of see it when I look back, because I think that the whole movie is really about this wonder of seeing this this unknown thing it, it, there's a childlike wonder that sort of is a part of it um that that does sort of lend itself to a certain faith-like revelation and yet it's not really about faith at all so i just i just found that kind of interesting it made me actually want to rewatch the movie so i may uh, i may head off to the theater and see it you know, um, I think this is one I'm going to have to add to my backlist as I've never seen this one, mm. Paul. So I can't – I don't uh, know what you're talking about with all this. So uh, I might have to – this might have to be part of like season two of the backlist, Hall yeah. of Shame. Yeah, we're going to um, have to we're gonna have to speed that the backlist up. But yeah, it's a really interesting movie and, and I think you would really enjoy it. You'll never uh, look at mashed potatoes quite the same way again. Ooh, interesting. Mashed potatoes, huh? I still, when I think of mashed potatoes, I still think of now something I'm not supposed to like associate with anymore, and it's an old Bill Cosby bit about cream of wheat and lumps in his cream of wheat versus lumps in his mashed potatoes. So there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the least, least important thing right there, I think. All right. So uh, mine for this week is actually a little tidbit that's not necessarily brand new, but is coming soon. And that is, and and I think it's pretty interesting because of what it says about the state of pop culture and what is influential and what's becoming influential. So we talk a lot about the death of books and the death of radio and the death of TV, and yet they, they're these things that we got out of books and out of radio and out of TV still live on in new forms. And so I heard even about in this, the old forms, even really. in the old forms, true, <laughs> they're not gone, they're not dead and gone. However, so I just heard about – so we talk about how Netflix and Amazon Prime are changing the way we watch TV. You know, no longer we're watching terrestrial broadcasts. We're we're getting these digital content shows. We're binging them all at once. And people aren't listening to radio as much anymore. They're not listening to stories on radio anymore. They're listening to audiobooks, you know. Now, of course, that's a bit of hyperbole. We still do a little bit of the old. But these things are starting to change habits. Amazon Prime this fall is releasing a TV series called Lore. So what's interesting about that is, do you know what it's based on, Paul? I do not. It's based on a podcast called Lore. Really? So now we're entering an era where we're having these television disrupting channels like Amazon Prime Video that are now creating content based on podcasts, which is a radio disrupting channel. Yeah. It didn't exist as a book before. It didn't exist like as a radio show before. It was a podcast that a guy started because he liked looking back at history's stories of weird mythological 
stories that pervaded in old cultural context. Oh, I totally he turned it into it a now. podcast, and now it's being turned into a digital TV series. Yeah. yeah, now I now I want to listen to the podcast and watch the show. It's it's interesting because we've seen this sort of develop over time. We've we've I remember even a few years ago. There was a sitcom starring William Shatner, you know, Blank My Dad Says, which I think was right. based on a Twitter feed. It was. And so you have you have some YouTube stars migrating over into more traditional media, if you can call, you know, Netflix and whatnot traditional media. So you do have a lot of it you are seeing a lot of interesting overlap, which you would not have seen by definition ten years ago because none of this stuff really existed it, back it then. It didn't exist and, and even now, like most of the time we're basing stuff off of books that were written a long time ago or none even mine, old movies or you know, things like that. And or War of the Worlds, an old radio broadcast. But yet this is something that didn't exist in any form until it became a podcast. And now a TV show is being based on a podcast. Both, yeah. and it's not a TV show; it's a digital. Yeah. You know, it, and to me, it's kind of fascinating because somebody like you, you don't know the source material. Yeah. Because the no. source material is a podcast, which is a new medium. Yeah. Relatively speaking. So, so Jake, to close and it this drops out. in October. Oh, Hold on, I, I want to give you this just to get you more excited. About yeah, yeah, yeah. It. The executive producer. It's coming from the executive producer of The Walking Dead and the executive producer of The X Files. Oh my goodness! So you, I, yeah. yeah, two people that are deeply rooted in broadcast television yeah. are bringing a podcast to a non-broadcast television show. No, and about a subject that I really and about a subject that you love. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm 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 living up to the fanboy title right now. All I'm right. definitely all over that. So, so Jake, do you think that anyone will ever make a TV series of our podcast? Not as it currently stands. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get it. Like the problem is, is we're just too boring off. Yeah. Well, mic. well, one of us is. <laughs> I'm too boring <laughs> off mic. I don't do anything exciting and juicy. So they'd have to invent all sorts of sordid details. Yeah, yeah. To make it more, I don't know, Game of Thrones like. Yeah, yeah. My history is a Paul's as history a in international the spy. <laughs> Rodeo I bet writer. there's some stories in there. <laughs> Spy. That could be a TV yeah. show. No, I'm all over that. Uh, there you have it, folks. That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know It All. Be sure to catch up with us on the Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. Hit us up on the Facebook group where Pop Culture with Fan People and Know It Alls. Send us your favorite movie tv nerd memes and gifs we love it all and please tell jake that he's wrong about the defenders i'm hoping guys uh i want to be wrong but i don't think i can be in this case (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) oh that's it for this time i'm jake i'm paul we'll catch you guys on the flip side bye